Hey, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter to you. Welcome to Union Chapel and Easter Sunday. It is April 1st, so April Fool's Day, but the fool's on the devil today. The joke's on him because Jesus is alive and he is well. Amen. It's great. My name's Greg Paris, and I'm one of the guys here, and so we are so thrilled that you've joined us today. We're going to talk about a very important question today, which is, what does God think about me? What does God think about me? That question occurs to us casually in our lives from time to time, and it crosses our mind, and we think, well, what does God think about that or this or about me? Then there are other moments in our lives when we're in crisis or there's been tragedy or we've had failure, and the question comes to us like a lightning bolt and just challenges us to imagine what God really thinks about me. I don't think there's a more accurate picture of what God thinks about us than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at that today and try to understand better how to answer the question, what does God really think about me? We've chosen as our text today from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. We have a custom here at Union Chapel to stand when we hear God's word, uh, to honor God's word and recognize it as our, the authority in our lives. So as you're able, thank you for standing. These are the words from Matthew. And after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. Now, just pause right there. See that phrase? Afraid, yet filled with joy. Let yourself feel that. What a unique combination of emotions. Afraid, yet filled with joy. You feel the poignancy of that? Well, how often in life do you get to feel those things at the same time? Well, this was a unique situation. And suddenly, uh, they ran to his disciples, and Jesus met with them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now may God inspire and encourage us through his word today. You may be seated. Thank you so much. This is a holiday sermon. If you're here on a regular basis, you'll know that usually there are more than two points in my sermons, and today it's a holiday sermon, just two points. You're welcome. Congratulations. Yeah, it's going to be shorter than usual. Yeah, happy for you. If you, if you are going to take notes, and I hope you will, here's the first point. I want you to write this down. He descended. He descended. You need the word descend. Now, what do I mean by that? We have to ask the question, where was Jesus before he came to the earth? Where was he? 
Well, he was in an eternal kingdom. He was in a glorified place. He was with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the Godhead was there. And he was in a perfect place. Uh, we know that Jesus was the pre-existent, co-eternal word of God. Uh, through him, God spoke light into existence. Everything we see was made by him and for him it exists. And through him it consists and to him it will return. He was God. And this word, the Bible says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This, this is a descent from a glorified eternal kingdom a heavenly place, he descended down to the earth and put on an earth suit, just like we have, like a person. And he descended then from the divine to the flesh. Jesus had never known this kind of separation from God the Father. He had only known glory and majesty and praise. And so when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, think about the step down that he had to take. It's a big step from where he was to coming here. Let me ask you a question. Does anyone here believe that uh, you and yourself are as loving or as smart or as creative or as powerful as God? You consider yourself equal with God? <laughs> well, that's a silly question, isn't it? We, we laugh, I, you know, we giggle at that because we're aware of our humanity. We get it, don't we? We understand that we are weak and we're, we're lowly and, and we're needy. And so we are not God. And so we have perspective on that. So that helps us, doesn't it? Get perspective on the descent that Jesus made from where he was to coming to the earth. We know he was born of a virgin as a helpless baby with all the attendant weaknesses and human frailties, except that inside of him was the divine presence of Almighty God. Can you understand that is a descent? Mm -hmm. He became subject to the laws of the earth, the laws of nature. When he stubbed his toe in Joseph's carpenter's shop, his toe hurt. When he cut his hand with a saw, he bled. He worked, he slept, he ate. He descended from the halls of heaven and the presence of angels down to earthly dirt. All the way down. Yeah, it's a descent from divinity to humanity. So imagine with me. Just imagine. Let your mind try to get around this. And again, we're answering the question, what does God think about me? Jesus descended. He had never known, for example, temptation. Not once, that downward pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil. If I were to ask you today, uh, do you know what temptation is? We all go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got that. We understand temptation. It's with us all the time. We understand. But imagine Jesus in a heavenly place, an eternal kingdom, never experienced temptation in a place that was absolutely untemptable. And there he is then after the descent. Imagine Jesus becoming the most tempted man who's ever lived. Understood fully temptation. Understand it better by looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Look at it on the screen with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin. Now imagine every temptation in humanity being thrown at him. Temptation. He descended also into the world of pain. He was in a world of painlessness and descended into a world of pain. Imagine the moment when Roman soldiers, violent men, drunken 
demonized men, chained him to a whipping post, lashed him until his ribs and backbone showed through, then took a robe and pressed it into his wounds, and then a crown of thorns and pressed it into his head until blood flowed into his eyes and down his face. They mocked him. They ridiculed him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Mockery. Imagine that. Some of you have traveled to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land. And if you've traveled there, perhaps you have visited an ancient site. There's uh, some ruins there, which was formerly the Antonio Fortress. It was a Roman garrison where prisoners were held. It was close to the temple. It was a very tall building so that the Romans could keep an eye on the Jews and their activities around the temple. The Antonio Fortress and some of the remains are still there. And in one of the lower levels, a friend of mine who has been there described it to me as a place where on the, on the flagstones there on the floor, you can see etchings in the floor. This, this uh, board game, if you will, a ghoulish, horrible game that Rome would play with condemned prisoners. And you can see one place, and you can imagine Jesus there, standing on one stone. First the beating, take a step to the next, then the mocking, then the next step, proclaiming him king, moving around this horrible game until finally killing him. A friend of mine reported to me the story of standing in that very spot. Tourists all around, cameras clicking. My friend said he could not contain his tears, I think. While those around him expressed curiosity, he wept, realizing this was the precise spot where Jesus began his suffering. Hmm. My friend realized the profound enormity of the descent. Imagine the second person of the Godhead who had never heard anything but praise. Worthy is the Lamb suddenly being beaten and mocked and scourged and derided and rejected. I just want to say, what a descent from the halls of the palace of heaven to the basement of the Antonio Fortress. Jesus descended. Mm -hmm. And then there was rejection. In heaven, Jesus was the object of praise and adoration. Angels, think about this, archangels, beings of infinite variety, the Old Testament saints, all falling before him in worship, day and night, singing and swirling and praising with Jesus at the center of all this affection. A descent from glory then to what? The Bible says he was despised and rejected. Not just generally rejected by the people around him, but specifically rejected by his closest friends because they all turned tail and ran. And then we come to this most interesting and amazing descent of God-forsakenness. He was counted as forsaken by God. When Jesus cried out from the cross, Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing the ultimate descent from the presence of the right hand of God to a moment on the cross when God now has turned his back on his own son. He becomes the God-forsaken God, if you will. Look at this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We get understanding now on why this happened. Why was he forsaken by God? What was the reason for it? It says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. See, the rejection of God, it came in the moment when he 
bore the sins of the world in his own body and in his own soul. He who knew no sin became sin. He descended then into our humanity, into temptation, into pain, into rejection, into God-forsakenness. But still that wasn't enough. There was yet another thing that Jesus descended into, and that is cursedness. Now you have to follow this. This is, a, this is an important theological point. As Jesus hung on the cross, as the law of Moses stated and was restated in the book of Galatians chapter 3, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now what does that mean? It means that the curse of all humanity that came up out of every person who has committed sin, follow it now. And he knew that no sin, neither could countenance sin. This is Jesus who ever committed a sin, never a wrong thought or a wrong motive, never lied, never gossiped, no racial prejudice, no hatred, never known a sin. Suddenly, all of the lies, all of the perversion, all of the hatred, all of the bitterness, the wickedness, the rape, the murder, the immorality, all of the darkness of sin which came up out of all of humanity suddenly affixed itself to him. Cursed. Cursed. He not only bore the curse, he became the curse for us. Now, this is difficult to even get our minds around because you know your sin. You know the evil thoughts that have come through your mind. You know the tendencies you have. I know my sin. I know how corrupt and debased my own nature is. We all are aware of that. But it's not just your sin that fell upon him or my sin that came upon him, but the accumulated sin of every person who would ever live. Imagine the weight of that. He who knew no sin became sin, became cursed for you and me. It's almost too much, isn't it? It's beyond, beyond us. It's too much to think of, too horrible, too terrible, too stunning. And yet, isn't it true? At the same time, it's so wonderful. It's so hopeful. It's so amazing that God took your sin, the weight of your sin and the sin of us all, and he bore it upon his own body and in his own soul. Listen, this is a glorious identification. He descended. Jesus descended. So we ask the question, what does he think of me? What does he think of you? What do you think of this descent and what it means about how he feels toward you? I mean, imagine every person who's ever awakened in the morning with a hangover, unclear about the previous night, not knowing for sure where you've been or what you have done or with whom you've done it, feeling horrible and feeling guilty and feeling condemned. Imagine your sin, your guilt, your shame. But Jesus descended, and he understands. He, he felt the weight of it in his own body, more the, than the horror of the of the Roman nails that affixed him to that cross was the weight, the cursedness of your sin and mine. Some of you know that many years ago, Union Chapel embarked on a mission initiative to part of the former Soviet Union, Central Asia, Kazakhstan. As far as we could determine by our research, Kazakhstan is a part of the world, Central Asia, uh, 
through which the ancient Silk Road, uh, a, a great merchant road that went from Eastern Europe all the way to China. And it was the land of Genghis Khan, a mixture of Mongols and, and, and Europeans, um, a very interesting people, ethnically, uh, oval features, oriental features, and yet olive skin, very, very handsome, rugged, nomadic people historically. And as far as we could determine by our research, the gospel had never been preached there. The Apostle Paul said it this way, I have an ambition to preach the gospel where it's never been heard. And so we felt God calling us there. And as far as our research would determine, there was only one time in history, we believe in the fourth century, where four men going across the ancient Silk Road, heading east, uh, west to east toward China, uh, these men preached the gospel in the fourth century. All four of them were martyred along the way. But since then... No reliable witness of Jesus. And so we decided to go there. And we found these folks who had just been extricated from Russian communism. They are traditionally Muslim peoples. And so they had this unique culture. And we sent people there. We, we've had over 20 of our people from our congregation live in Kazakhstan full time. We've had over 400 members of our congregation travel to Kazakhstan to do uh, different projects. And so we went to Kazakhstan. And when we first got there, the Kazakhs did not welcome us. They were suspicious of us. They said, why did you come here? Now, we wondered about that. Well, why are you suspicious of us? We're just trying to help, but try to put yourself in their place. They immediately wondered about us because they knew about America. They knew that America is a place of comfort and abundance and prosperity. And it is. Compared to Kazakhstan, America is amazing. And so they were immediately suspicious. Why would you uproot yourself from the comfort and abundance of America to come to live in Kazakhstan? It makes no sense to us. And that led to their suspicion. They asked, what do you want from us? What are you going to do to us? Are, are you spies? Are you, are you here for dubious reasons? Are you here to hurt us? Are you here to steal from us? Are you part of the CIA? People thought, they, they thought we were CIA because we must be up to something. So it took a long time. It took, it took a long time to love and genuinely befriend and to serve the Kazakhs until they realized that we were not there to take from them, but to actually give them the most precious thing that we have to offer, which is hope found in Jesus Christ. And they finally opened their arms to us. Now listen, can't you hear the message of God this morning? Can't you hear it? Don't you understand what God said? He said, look, I'm not in another part of the world or part of the universe untouched by your needs, unmoved by your struggles of humanity, uncaring about the condition of your soul. I am with you. I am among you. I am you. Jesus descended. He didn't have to do that. What motivated him to do that? What, what, what encouraged him? What reason might he give for leaving the perfect place that he lived in order to come down here? Why would he leave the comfort and abundance of an eternal kingdom to come to the earth and deal with the stuff that all of us deal with? I think it's motivated by what he thinks about you. I think it's motivated by what's really in his heart toward you. 
I think it was motivated by his goodness and his love. What else could be? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten Son of God. He was one of us. Jesus came to the earth so that he could look you in the eye and look me in the eye and identify completely with our need. Wow. So he descended. Now, here's the second thing, and you want to write this down. We only have two points. This is the last point. He ascended. He ascended. Having descended, did he not also ascend? Now, listen, the most triumphant announcement to ever grace the lips of humanity, no matter where you go or who you see or want to make the most important announcement you can make, no matter where you are in the world, no matter when in history you were there, the best news, the grandest news that you can ever offer another human being is this. If you want to know what it is, this is the announcement. Christ is risen. Jesus is alive. He's alive. And he has descended to express his love for you. And because he has descended, might we also ascend with him. E. Stanley Jones was a great Methodist missionary of another generation. Uh, e. Stanley Jones, a historic uh, global leader in the church, phenomenal life and influence. And as a missionary to India, was asked one day by a Muslim mullah, a leader in the Muslim community. He said, Dr. Jones, I feel sorry for you Christians. You do not have a place where your prophet, your Christ, is buried. You don't have a tomb. So we in the Muslim faith have a tomb. We know where our prophet Muhammad is buried. He is entombed in Mecca. The Buddhists know where Buddha is buried. The Taoists know where Tao is buried. But you Christians, you don't have a tomb. To which Dr. Jones said, it's worse than that. We don't have a body either. No body. See, the good news is that the same Jesus who descended into the very depths of our humanity also ascended. Yeah, look at Hebrews 7.25 on the screen with me. It says, therefore, he is able to save completely. That is to the uttermost, to, to mean absolutely those who come to God through him. You see, he, he could not save us to the uttermost until he first descended into the guttermost, into the, into the very depths, until Jesus had plumbed the depths of everything I could do to mar the face of God in my humanity. He could not save me completely. This is the great reality of Easter. This is why we celebrate. As Jesus identifies with us in our humanity, we identify with Jesus in resurrection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, the Bible says that when Jesus died, he descended into hell to preach captive those who are captive, right? When Jesus entered hell, this is what happened. He kicked the door off its hinges, seized the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He rose triumphant by the glorious word of Almighty God. That's why in Revelation 1.8, Jesus said, Behold, I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore. This is the way the apostle Paul wrote it, 1 Corinthians 15. He said, Listen, I want to tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. 
For when the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You understand that when Jesus Christ arose, all of the requirements of the law that led to death, all the requirements of the law which declared us condemned were nailed to the cross. All of the principalities, all of the powers which align themselves against us and accuse us of our sins and guilt before God were led captive by his triumphant procession. You can find that in Colossians chapter 2. All of that to say that when Jesus arose, he arose with all of humanity, all of us in his wake, pulling us all along into the hope that he alone provides by his death and resurrection. So death, grave, and the hell have been rendered powerless through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My wife Beth and I, uh, 38 years ago, began pastoring this church. And at the time, it was a little cornfield church, a little red brick church, 12 miles north of town. We had 50 or 60 people there. And about this time of year, when the temperatures started warming up, the building, which was about 100 years old at the time, apparently it had a void somewhere in a wall back behind the chancel area. And when the temperature warmed up, a wasp nest, which was in that void of that wall, would activate, and the wasps would start filtering in, infiltrating the sanctuary. So we'd be having church, and a wasp would start dive-bombing people in the pews. And you can understand, people were annoyed by it, unnerved by it. I mean, if you see a wasp, if you've ever been stung by a wasp, I mean, this is something to avoid. Now, the old pulpit that we had in the church at the time had a little cabinet in it, uh, that you could open up, and I kept a can of Raid uh, in the pulpit right there, and so this is what you can do in a little country church, and so when the wasp started dive bombing, I would get this Raid out, and, and as it would fly by, psh, I was trying to hit it. It's what you do. Now, what if you were bold enough and brave enough to let the wasp land on your hand? And then you notice he's trying to sting you. I mean, he's got his tail, and he's trying to put one, put one on you. And you're brave enough just to sit and watch. And you realize, wait a minute. That wasp it can't sting me because the stinger's gone. Someone's pulled the stinger out of this wasp. And you realize that wasp can't hurt you at all. Can't even touch you in any harmful way. Not a bit. Not at all. You realize this is a wasp without a stinger. If you knew the wasp didn't have a stinger, what are you going to feel about the wasp at this point? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go bug off. You, you got nothing threatening toward me. Yeah, it's just a little bug. I'm not intimidated by you anymore. I'm not frightened by you. I'm not going to try to avoid you. You're nothing. Bug off or try that. Listen to me, friends. Death has been done to death. Death no longer has any victory. Death no longer has any sting. 
because the stinger's been removed. Jesus, once and for all, has defeated death. And we are the people of resurrection who have hope over death. And it's a wonderful message to share. Amen. Last story, a woman was told by her doctor she had three months to live. She gathered her family. She ordered her funeral service. These are the songs I want sung. These are the scriptures I want read. This is the outfit I want to be dressed in. And then she said to her pastor, Pastor, I want to be buried with my favorite Bible in my left hand. And she said, in my right hand, I want to be holding a fork. Pastor said, that's very unique, very interesting. What do you mean by that? Oh, you know, she said, the next three months, the doctor said, the next three months are going to be hard for me. And my death isn't going to be all that easy. And I don't know how bad it's going to be. But I do know that when I lie cold and still in a casket, and people start filing by, I know what people tend to do. One person will say, isn't that a pretty dress? Another person will say, didn't they do a nice job with her hair? Another person will say, don't they look natural? What is, what is that about? <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> but she said, with the fork in my right hand, everybody's going to look at that and go, What's up with the fork? She said, when they ask what's up with the fork, you tell them that for years, in all of these church socials, in all these carry-in dinners that I attended, she said at the end of one of those meals, someone would always come to try to clear the table a little bit, and then they'd look down at you and they'd say, keep your fork. Hang on to your fork. Now listen, we all know what that means, don't we? We know what that means. We, we, we got the picture perfectly. We know to keep the fork means that it's time for the velvet chocolate cake or the deep dish apple pie or the fresh baked peach cobbler. How many of you are ready for lunch right now? I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it just occurs to you. What is she saying? She said, my hope is in my faith. And the promise in my heart is that the better is yet to be served, that the best is yet to come. And I want people to know that that's where my hope is. That's good, isn't it? Here's the great truth. Jesus descended that he might bankrupt the depth of human suffering. Think about it. Not even hell has a hold on us. And God wants to be alive in every heart. God wants to be alive in your heart. He wants to allow death to be swallowed up. And all of your yesterdays and the pain of yesterday and the failures of yesterday to be swallowed up in a hopeful future. My friend, I want to implore you today, don't make this a memorial service to a dead Christ, but make it a celebration of the resurrection of a Savior. Jesus Christ, who wants you to know him and to find the hope that he alone provides. Amen? Happy Easter, everyone. Let's pray. Lord, we pause to give you thanks and praise. Thank you. Thank you. And we praise you. 
Lord, I can imagine there are people here today who have had so much death in their experience that they can't believe for life. I imagine there are people here who are hurting so much that they can hardly believe you are alive. And so right now, oh God, I pray you will breathe faith into them as a gift of grace. I can imagine there are people here who have known so much bondage that they can hardly believe there could be liberty and freedom. And I pray, oh God, right now in this moment, that you will liberate by your power. Be free, my friend. Be free by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And I can imagine there are people here who have done things and they feel so guilty, so condemned, that they think there is no hope for them. Oh God, I pray that you will show them what you really think of them, the riches of your love, your acceptance, your forgiveness, your grace. Now, friend, you may be a person who's been away from God for a long time and you didn't expect this, but you sense God calling you back home. It's maybe caught you a little off guard this morning. You weren't, you weren't ready for this, but God is working in your heart and he's calling to you. And maybe you've never come to God at all, not once in your life, no matter where you are today. God calls you to take a step toward him. Let me give you a prayer to pray. I'll say the words. You believe them in your heart. Just pray them in your mind. God will hear you. God will hear you. Here's the prayer. Oh God, forgive me for all the things I've done wrong. I invite you into my life. Fill me with faith and hope and love. I give my life to you. And thank you for including me in your family. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.